At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later on the show, an Amazon of the avant-garde, the ballet dancer and choreographer who started out in revolutionary Russia, worked in wartime Kiev, and then came to Hollywood in the 30s. Branislava Nijinska, the long-neglected sister of the legendary dancer Vaslav Nijinsky. She had an amazing life. Lynn Garafola will explain. Her new book is... La Nijinska, choreographer of the modern. But first, Tuesday's Democratic primaries for the House were flooded with money from pro-Israel groups seeking to defeat progressive candidates. It worked in some places, but not others. John Nichols will report in a minute. This was the first big week of primary elections in this year's midterms. On the Democratic side, progressives ran some terrific candidates in swing states, and then they were attacked, not by Republicans, but by centrist and establishment and corporate Democrats who ran aggressive attack ads on TV funded by APAC, the Israel lobby. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you, John. Well, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, has a new super PAC, and they spent millions of dollars on attack ads on progressives uh, leading up to this week's primaries. I think it pretty much unprecedented level of spending in Democratic primaries. So the question today is, did it work? Uh, let's start with Summer Lee. You've written about her for The Nation. She's campaigning in Pittsburgh for an open Democratic seat in the House. She was endorsed by Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC. And then APAC and its super PAC, as well as another one called Democratic Majority for Israel, spent more than $3 million to uh, defeat her. Tell us about Summer Lee with 100% of the vote in. I think she's still got an 862 vote lead. So it looks like Summerlee will be the first black woman ever to represent Pennsylvania in Congress. Summerlee is a remarkable candidate on a, on a whole bunch of levels. And I've written about her a number of times. In fact, uh, interviewed her many times over the last several years because um, she really stands out. She is a lawyer, uh, an organizer, someone who ran a very tough race for the state legislature several years ago got elected, and then instead of just going off to Harrisburg and being a legislator, she really established kind of a new model for uh, an elected official in the Pittsburgh area. She turned a great deal of her energy back into local organizing, to races for other offices, and you know, it's become something of a phenomenon in the area. So when this congressional seat opened up uh, that takes in some of Pittsburgh and surrounding areas in the Mon Valley, uh, she announced early and, and you know, looked, looked to be a very strong candidate. Her opponent, her main opponent, a guy named Steve Irwin, 
was a Democratic Party insider who had been around for a long time, uh, you know, had a lot of appointed positions, hadn't been elected to anything. Uh, and so it, initially it looked like Lee was in pretty good shape. But then you saw this massive infusion of outside money. Uh, and I was tracking it on a regular basis. I would go and check and it would go up uh, each day by like three or $400,000. Uh, to now the combined spending against her looking in the range of $3.3 million. I should say against her and for her opponent. So it's a little so, bit of combination. So um, why did the, the pro-Israel PACs uh, go against her? They say their mission, APAC says its mission is to elect strong supporters of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Was that what this campaign was about? Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there was some element of that because Summer Lee, like a lot of Democrats now, uh, has a very nuanced view of the Middle East. She is supportive of uh, the rights of Israelis and Palestinians. And so she's very similar to uh, the group J Street, uh, which we've talked about before. And in fact, J Street said very complimentary things about her in this campaign. Another group, Ben the Ark Jewish Action, uh, was organizing on the ground on behalf of her campaign. And so the notion that, that Summer Lee was somehow you know, way outside the bounds of our contemporary discourse or something like that was absurd. Um, and so it, you know, it, it, there was clearly some discomfort with her on the part of some of these groups, perhaps related to Israel-Palestine, but there was also something else going on. And that was that uh, you saw the criticism of Summer Lee, not about Middle East issues, but about um, you know, this claim that she was a bad Democrat. Yeah. That you know, Israel-Palestine wasn't mentioned in any of the ads, any of the attacks or anything like that. It was all that, oh, she's a bad Democrat. And the thing that made her a quote unquote, you know, disloyal or bad Democrat was the fact that uh, as a a candidate as a legislator, she had talked a lot about reforming the Democratic Party and making it more responsive to economic and social and racial justice issues, uh, more focused on climate, more focused on, you know, a, a, a kind of a broad progressive uh, agenda, very similar to that of Bernie Sanders, who she backed for president. But the attacks on her actually had pictures of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and suggesting that she had a hard time choosing between them. Now, the, the lie of this was so overwhelming because in the run-up to the 2020 election, Bernie Sanders had come into the Pittsburgh area along with the United Electrical Union and Summer Lee to hold a major rally to get out progressive voters for Joe Biden. And so it was just a deeply dishonest campaign. But it was so heavily funded and so intense, just wall-to-wall -wall advertising and mailings and, and all sorts of communications that there really did, uh, you know, it certainly closed the gap in the race. And there developed a lot of concern that Summer Lee might lose, might lose this contest. Yeah, Not she because she was the best candidate. She started out with a 25-point advantage in the polls, and then she won by less than one point. So... $3.4 million in, in uh, attack ads uh, did have an effect. I saw that her opponent, this this uh, Steve Irwin, uh, 
was endorsed by a lot of the big unions in Pittsburgh, the steel workers, a lot of the craft unions. It's never good to see uh, unions working to defeat progressive leaders. No, it's always frustrating. And, you know, Irwin had, uh, he came out of a law firm that, that did some labor work. Uh, it's often sometimes criticized for not always being on the right side of every struggle. But uh, it is important to note that Summerlee did have the support of uh, United Electrical. And I know on the national scale, a lot of people may not know United Electrical that well, but UE is one of the uh, oldest progressive unions in the United States, and it's headquartered in Pittsburgh and has deep, deep roots in the Bond Valley and, and the regions around there. And, uh, and, you know, I've had people say to me, including Bernie Sanders, that, you know, if you're running for office and you want somebody to have your back, uh, UE is, is a union you want to have there. And uh, it was notable that when Summerlee did her victory speech uh, on early Wednesday morning, uh, there was a UE banner right next to her. So, <laughs> okay. uh, and, and also the other thing that Summerlee did have in this race, which I think was hugely important, is, uh, you know, in politics so much uh, or so often, we do talk about the money on TV and, and all the, you know, uh, the kind of insider traditional stuff. She had a movement. She had grassroots uh, backing from a lot of young people. And it's really important to note that in the um, Pittsburgh area, Democratic Socialists of America and other progressive groups uh, have really gained a lot of traction in recent years. There are movement uh, groupings there. And that, that, I think, helped her a great deal. So let's move now from uh, from Pittsburgh to North Carolina, where the story was not so good for progressive candidates, where two progressive candidates for the House were defeated by the pro-Israel forces. Uh, the first seat was in Durham and Chapel Hill, where there's a safe Democratic seat. Biden won here uh, easily, the progressive candidate was a county commissioner named Nida Alam, a Bernie Sanders supporter who would have been North Carolina's first Muslim member of Congress, but she was she only got 37 percent of the vote after uh, almost three million dollars in attack ads on her for her opponent, Senator Valerie Fushi. Uh, tell us about that campaign and about Nida Alam. Well, I think that uh, Alam was a very impressive candidate, and she did have strong support from Bernie Sanders uh, and and from a lot of activists. But, you know, look, uh, when you're in a situation like this, when you're having this huge amount of money being spent against you, you know, literally uh, trying to slow you down, in some races, it's going to work. And, and I mean, we, you and I, John, we've talked for many, many times uh, about money in politics. And it's something that, that we do have to understand with all the issues we talk about, with all the, um, you know, the practical realities of political campaigns, uh, overwhelming infusions of money into races where candidates may not be exceptionally well known uh, can have a profound impact. One of the things where I think you see a difference between the North Carolina race and the um, Pennsylvania race is that in Pennsylvania, Summerlee was a very, very high profile individual. So the attacks on her, certainly they had an impact. I think that, you know, that they, they drew her numbers down, but um, they, I think, did not have quite the impact that they had, obviously, in the two North Carolina races. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about other races, I think, probably in Oregon and places like that. Um, but as you look across the country, this is a fundamental reality. And what we are seeing is that um, in many races, we now have three campaigns. We have, you know, maybe a progressive candidate, 
a centrist candidate, and then we have the big money. <laughs> and, and the big money uh, can sometimes really put its thumb on the scale in favor of that more centrist candidate. And the other defeat we had in North Carolina was Erica Smith, who ran for an open safe Democratic seat up by the Virginia border. This was upsetting because the, the mainstream candidate, a black man named Don Davis, uh, was the only Democrat in the state legislature to vote in favor of funding an anti-abortion so-called crisis pregnancy center. And he was often one of just a small handful of Democrats to vote to defund Planned Parenthood. Erica Smith tried to make this an issue. How come that guy won and the progressive lost? Well, of course, if you had a lot more money to make it an issue, it might help, right? Yeah. I mean, again, uh, when you've been facing attack ads for a long time and, and you know, one candidate's been get built up for a long time, an issue comes in. And if you've got a lot of resources, you can sometimes you know, move the balance. But uh, it's, uh, I, I think that, that I would caution against assuming that the abortion issue doesn't ultimately have a lot of traction. I think it does. And I think we actually saw some races around the country uh, even yesterday where, where it, was, it was a factor. I think we may see it being a factor down in the, in the Texas runoff election next week for Jessica Cisneros. But um, yeah, it's just the truth that, that uh, you had a senior legislator who did have a lot of, in the winner in that district had a lot of name recognition. He was more conservative player. Uh, I will counsel also that, that, you know, districts are different as well. You do have some districts where yeah. uh, the Democratic Party is not as progressive yeah. as in other places. And so I think that was sort of a factor in North Carolina. The other factor was that the, the establishment really came out against Erica Smith. The Congressional Black Caucus endorsed her opponent. The state AFL-CIO endorsed her opponent. Uh, Representative Jim Clyburn, the kingmaker of uh, North Carolina politics, uh, uh, endorsed her opponent. Her endorsers included Planned Parenthood Action Fund and NARAL Pro-Choice America and Katie Porter, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't anywhere near enough, uh, enough to do it. So the establishment really flexed its muscles in this one. In North Carolina, yeah. there's, there's no doubt of it. And, you know, look, uh, this, is, this is gonna be one of the realities of, of this, this kind of election season as we go forward. What you're gonna see is um, a, a real battle between centrists and progressives. People shouldn't deny that. They shouldn't look away from it anymore. They've got to start to recognize that this is a fundamental reality. This is what's in play. And, um, and frankly, media has to do a much better job of covering these races and covering you know, the uh, vehicles by which corporate interests, which often back Republicans, are coming into Democratic primaries and having an impact. And, and I, I really want to emphasize this. I wrote about this in, in the piece I did on Pennsylvania. Uh, I went down that list of donors and many of the donors to the groups that were attacking Summer Lee uh, have also funded Republicans. Yeah. I mean, you know, literally uh, people like Jim Jordan and folks like that. So you see this kind of warping of the process by, uh, by this money. And it's, you know, boy, I wish I could give you good news today. John, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to get worse yeah. uh, because we have a Supreme Court right now that seems to be bent on, you know, tearing down every uh, limit on corporate money and special interest money. And, you know, with a recent ruling, even the bribery of U.S. senators. Mm. 
Well, let's talk about Oregon, where uh, the guy we call the Joe Manchin of the House, uh, Kurt Schrader, the Democratic in- incumbent, faced a primary challenger from Jamie McLeod Skinner. This is a very tight race. Uh, we're taping on uh, Wednesday at midday. Uh, what's going on in Oregon? Yeah, well, Oregon always kind of makes it tough for us because they have you know overwhelming yes. mail-in balloting. Yeah. And so as a result, they actually do something that, you know, you might refer to as democracy. And um, they, you know, you, you can mail the ballot in until the end of the day on Tuesday. So that means that that ballot, a lot of those ballots don't arrive until Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even into the start of the next week. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how, you know, we make sure that a lot of people get to vote. But it is a real bummer for pundits and, and uh, you know, the next morning because you, you've got to wait for some of the votes to come in. Now, here's the, the deal. In that race, Skinner looks to be way ahead, at least in this initial vote. And she had a, a high level of support from county parties throughout the district. Uh, she was a progressive. There's no question of that. But she had a lot of on-the-ground support from the, the party members themselves there, and people have been longtime Democrats because they were very frustrated with uh, Schrader, who was, uh, you know, he at one point referred to the impeachment of Donald Trump as a lynching. Uh, I mean, this is a Democrat, right? Uh, he was somebody who broke with the Democrats on a host of issues. Um, and, you know, he's heads the blue dogs, uh, their pack and stuff like that. This, is a, this guy is not, you know, even a mainstream moderate Democrat. He's actually quite conservative. And um, and so Skinner really, you know, tore into that. She also ran a very, very progressive campaign. She did have support from a lot of uh, progressive groups, uh, Working Families Party and others. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we'll see. And I, you always have to be careful about this. But I think that the size of her lead is such that there's a, a quite good chance that she's going to displace Schrader. There's one other race that I, I really want to talk to you about just because it's so much fun. John Fetterman won yeah. easily for the Democratic candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, a key state to our future and the future of the world. Tell us about John Fetterman, a wonderful candidate. He's a remarkable candidate, to say the least. Uh, John Fetterman is six feet, eight inches tall. <laughs> for starters, um, that's a good place to start. Yeah, he stands out in a crowd or he stands above the crowd. He yeah. is, um, uh, he wears, usually he dresses a lot like you, John. He wears a hoodie <laughs> and short pants, uh, gym shorts, uh, including on the campaign trip. Uh, he, uh, he rarely dresses up. Um, he's very, very blunt, uh, very anti-corporate, very critical of corporate power and stuff like that. Uh, big supporter of criminal justice reform, uh, supporter of Medicare for all. He was a Bernie Sanders backer in 2016. He's a controversial guy. He's said and done things that have angered a lot of folks over the years, including some progressives. So it's important to understand he's not always. It, it's you got to be cautious about painting him as a perfect figure, uh, but he is a fascinating figure. And um, he had a theory in running for this Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. He's currently the lieutenant governor there in Pennsylvania, and that was uh, his message was every county counts. Now, Pennsylvania is historically described as a state with uh, Pittsburgh on one side, Philadelphia on the other, and Alabama in the middle. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's a very unfair characterization of Pennsylvania because there are progressive Democrats and working class Democrats 
in the middle of Pennsylvania too. But that 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 kind of dismissive approach has led to a politics in Pennsylvania where a lot of the, the emphasis goes on Philadelphia and its suburbs, Pittsburgh and its suburbs, not as much, you know, outstate. Fetterman went all over the state. He went to a lot of counties that tended to vote, have voted Republican in the past, uh, spent a lot of time in places where Democrats don't usually go. And the amazing thing was he won all 67 counties running against Connor Lamb, a, a Democratic congressman who had plenty of money and, and the support of a, a lot of elected officials, party organizations. And so uh, Fetterman's got he has an approach here that is uh, one that sort of upsets the apple cart, that does a different different kind of approach on politics. Now, he's got work to do. This is going to be, you know, one of the two most targeted Senate races in the country. Uh, at this point, we don't even know who his opponent will be because the Republican primary is so closely divided, uh, but it may be Dr. Oz. And uh, so what Fetterman's going to have to do is unite the Democratic Party. And that means he's going to have to work hard in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, uh, especially Philadelphia, to make sure that he gets out a large vote from the, the Democratic base. But then um, he does have this theory, and we'll see how it works, that he could expand the Democratic vote, expand the base you know, more broadly. And um, if he pulls it off, if he pulls it off, uh, he would be a remarkable addition to the United States Senate. One more thing about Fetterman. He's for legalizing weed. And that oh, it's not just... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You're not even, you're, you're so understating it. <laughs> um, it is a very central premise of his candidacy. I mean, he doesn't just, you know, reference it, you know, eighth on the list of, of issues he's concerned about. Uh, everybody in Pennsylvania knows that legalization of marijuana is John Fetterman's issue. And um, that it's, it's very typical of his approach to politics. Again, he can be a controversial guy, he can get people mad, but uh, pretty much Everybody says, well, you know, he says what he thinks and he uh, and, and it's on a host of issues that a lot of other politicians tend to be somewhat cautious on. So uh, he's going to be a very, very interesting uh, uh, candidate. And again, I'll emphasize he came through this primary with not just a majority of the vote. I mean, he, he beat Connor Lamb uh, by two to one. Yeah. And uh, and there was a third candidate, a very impressive third candidate, Malcolm Kenyatta in the race, uh, who was uh, as progressive or more progressive than Fetterman. And so when we talk about these progressive centrist fights, it's important to understand that in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, um, candidates who, you know, pretty much ran, you know, to the left on a lot of issues, uh, got, you know, a lot of votes. And maybe that's Maybe that's the lesson we ought to take away that, uh, yeah, the money is very powerful. But as Summer Lee said uh, after her at, at her victory party, um, you know, sometimes we can have nice things. Sometimes we can have nice things. John Nichols, 
freedomatthenation.com. Thank you, John. Great talking to Pleasure. you today. John, it is always an honor to be with you on the, in the aftermath of an interesting election. Now it's time to talk about the ballet dancer and choreographer they called an Amazon of the avant-garde. Starting out in revolutionary Russia, working in wartime Kiev, and then coming to Hollywood in the 30s, Branislava Najinska, the long-neglected sister of the legendary dancer Vaslav Najinsky. She had an amazing life, and for that story, we turn to Lynn Garofola. She's Professor Emerita at Barnard College of Columbia University, a dance historian and curator, her new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. We reached her today in New York City, Lynn Garofola. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, let's start with ballet in Russia and how it was transformed by the currents of revolutionary politics there, starting with the 1905 revolution. And this means starting with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and their revolutionary conception of what ballet could be. Well, I think 1905 is re- is a really important year because there were a series of strikes throughout the imperial theaters at the Alexandrinsky Theater, which was a drama theater and always a little more liberal left than the very aristocratic Mariinsky Theater where ballet was. But nevertheless, there was a student strike among the ballet students, including Nijinsky. And a number of the other dancers uh, went out on strike in solidarity. And in fact, a number of dancers were dismissed as a result of 1905. So you sense that as a result, there was a kind of restiveness in the um, group. And this created a new group of uh, dancers, dancers with other expectations, with the sense that ballet was something that could, that was malleable. It wasn't frozen into the stultified forms of the uh, 19th century. In other words, you could have the Sleeping Beauty, but you could also have the Rite of Spring, which was obviously very, very different. So this was the world that, in a sense, formed Nijinska, and we're working with her brother on some of his innovative choreographies, being, in fact, kind of the clay for his experiments, the physical clay for his experiments, that she, in a sense, had a practicum in how do I learn to choreograph? (laughs) You know, you didn't have composition courses as you do throughout the dance field in colleges. But this was a kind of practicum in how you begin to think about taking movement apart and reassembling it. Then in 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power. You found a treatise that Najinska wrote apparently in 1918 about movement, kind of manifesto. It's still an amazing uh, document. Tell us about about that and about what was going on in Russia, in Russian ballet after 1917. Well, obviously what was going on in 1917, we know, the nation audience knows what was going on in 1917. And this too affected all aspects of, of life. Um, it has affected the arts, the visual arts, and I think a key person in Nijinska's, what you might call transformation at that point, was her encounter with the visual artist um, Alexandra Exter. And I think this really opened Nijinska's eyes to, to 
other things that were possible, that you had to get rid of all of this kind of literalism, that one could begin to think about pure form and that this pure form could rely on technique. I mean, it's kind of unusual there. And this 1918 treatise, which was never published and which was really an attack on ballet as she knew it, both the imperial ballet, but also the Fokine ballets that she had seen. And there, there's also implied an attack on her brother, on what she calls uh, the cocottes, meaning the prostitution that was going on within the ballet world. And certainly there was prostitution in the imperial theaters in this, I mean, high level prostitution. There were favorites. There were the grand dukes would have this and that and well-to-do men would have mistresses, sometimes boyfriends. And her brother was caught up a little bit into that. And of course, his relationship with Diaghilev was one uh, was a romantic one as well as a professional one. So when Nijinska is saying that, she's saying, I want no part of that world. I know what I want no part of this older form of theater dance. And I want no part of these ideas that I myself loved initially of, of mm-hmm. Fokines and it, to move forward. My favorite lines that you quote in the conclusion uh, are 1918. I want senseless acrobats to become creators again and professionals should be destroyed. Yes, <laughs> professionals should be destroyed. Professional was her her dismissive term for people who were trained to be pro- ballet dancers, trained in the imperial theaters, trained, who had the full training. I mean, she respected them because she knew the work that went into it, but that's not what she wanted. She wanted intelligent, educated dancers. And then she went to Kiev. We know a lot more about Kiev now than when you started this book. What was a Kiev in 1921 and, and why did she go there? Well, first of all, she had gone there in 1915 because she had returned uh, from the West. She was no longer with the Ballet Russe. She and her husband were living in St. Petersburg and they needed a job. World War I had just begun. And they got a job at something called Narodny Dom, the People's House, where uh, they were choreographing for operas. And then they began looking around for a better situation. And they went to um, Kiev, where she was the ballerina and he was the choreographer or ballet master, as he was called. So they were there until 1917. And he seems to have gone his way. There was certainly a split in their relationship. And then she decides to um, go to Moscow and try to rejoin her brother. But she needed exit visas and all of this. Now, it's very interesting that she wanted to go legally because at that point, lots of people from St. Petersburg and um, Moscow were fleeing um, Russia, fleeing the revolution and going first to to Ukraine, which had declared itself a republic and were turning Kiev into a really, a very, very exciting uh, place artistically. And then from there going to Odessa and then abroad. We now understand that geography. A lot better. She couldn't get, she was able to get an exit visa for herself, her children, her her one daughter and her mother. but But she couldn't get transit visas across France and through other countries. So she herself 
now reunited with her husband, danced for a while in Moscow, and then they went to Kiev because, as they said, food was more plentiful. But a lot more people were there. And also in that kind of open moment, she was able to establish her own school. And this she called the school not of ballet, not of dance, but the school of movement, uh, which says how she was really trying to think through what it was that distinguished dance in all its form. What was movement? She thought of herself as a supporter of the revolution, but she ended up fleeing from the new Soviet Union to the capitalist West. And we need to fast forward now to 1934 when Nijinska comes to Hollywood for the first time. One of my favorite parts of the book, she was 43 at that point. She'd been asked by the famous exile Austrian film director Max Reinhardt to choreograph the ballet sequences of the 1935 film version of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. This became a legendary movie starring James Cagney, Olivia de Havilland, with 15-year-old Mickey Rooney playing Puck, really an unforgettable part. What was it like for Najinska to work on a big Hollywood movie with some of the top people in the industry? Well, the one I think she most cared about was Puck, because I think she felt she could turn him into a dancer. Of course, why would he want to become a ballet dancer? But nevertheless, she definitely felt he had the makings of a fine ballet dancer. She was delighted to be invited to Hollywood. It was a very European group that she was surrounded by. I'm sure they mostly spoke uh, Polish and uh, French with a little English thrown in. So I think she would have been at home in that atmosphere. Also, you know, she had worked with often with dancers who didn't speak Russian or French. And she would often say it's demonstration, it's touch, it's um, showing that where I convey what it is that I want. And she managed to do that over and over and over again until the very end of her life. She had left behind a slew of debts And Hollywood enabled her to pay off those as well as support her children because she had two children in Paris. You know, she was the breadwinner for the family. And after World War II, of course, came the Cold War when Russian ballet dancers who defected were big news. The Dancer Defects, one of my favorite books about this period. We have to talk about Balanchine and the politics of Russian exiles in ballet in the United States in this period. Balanchine was one of the first defectors before the Cold War. He started, of course, the American Ballet Theater in New York City. During the Cold War, Balanchine played the part of the anti-Soviet defector to perfection. Nijinska was not, not actually that interested in the defectors. She didn't really talk much about Nureyev. What really excited her was to see the Bolshoi touring and and to meet people like the ballerina Galina Ulanova. In fact, there is a photo of Ulanova and Nijinska in Nijinska's backyard in Pacific Palisades with the ocean in the back. Um, So this excited her enormously, but what she couldn't understand was how they could have such wonderful companies with such a high level of technique and such terrible choreography. (laughs) And she began working desperately with Ulanova and also with Grigorovich, who now is considered the oldest traditionalist um, ballet master, but at the time was very young and was considered a newcomer to um, stage her ballet Les Nos 
at the Bolshoi. She really wanted that. So in a sense, she's a friends. She had a number of contacts during the period of the thaw with Soviet people, with um, the Soviet um, historian, ballet historian, Vera Krasovskaya, and she reunited through correspondence with many of her students, her former students from the School of Movement in Kyiv, who by then had come to Moscow and were living there. So she re and she donates a few things to Russian collections from her own collection. So she clearly did not have the strong anti-Soviet uh, views of many of her of many of her uh, colleagues uh, in the ballet world and and elsewhere among the emigre communities. One theme we've neglected throughout this period: she is a woman in what is pretty much a man's world. Modern dances, Martha Graham and Mary Vigman, but that's not really the case for most of the ballet world that she's come out of. The ballet world is more complicated than that because on the one hand, you have a you have these huge corps de ballets, you have these companies with many, many women. However, what she objected to was both the one was the ballerina role, that this is the only role for a woman in, in ballet. And of course, she insisted not only on the ability to choreograph, in other words, throw a few steps together, but to have a vision of where of what a ballet was and where it could go. And this is why she kept struggling to have her own company. So she could put these dances on the, uh, she could create these dances without someone saying, oh, no, 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 I have an idea for this ballet or for, for that ballet. But it meant that she was again and again being betrayed, I mean, to use a word <laughs> like that, that they were giving her a hard time. She constantly had to start from the beginning. And it was never, you know, she could never seem to get a secure position anywhere. And I also think there were tremendous problems with some of the men um, in the companies, not only with the administrators, but also with some of the male dancers, unless they had worked with her and understood that she could give them a great deal. Many of them just challenged her authority. I mean, there's a story of Jerome Robbins walking into one of her rehearsals at ballet theater in the early 40s in New York and sort of sauntering around. And she was livid furious. And then, and he never, you know, and then eventually he went to the bar or something and she was fit to be tied. Of course, in his later life, that's exactly how he behaved. I mean, he would not tolerate that kind of behavior in the studio whatsoever. He'd throw a chair at someone. <laughs> but she was also criticized for being tough and for in, um, imposing discipline uh, and while and she was never criticized, she was criticized in a way that other choreographers, such as Anthony Tudor, such as Michelle Fokine, such as Robbins himself, um, who perhaps um, exemplified the same kind of studio behavior, if not something much worse. Last question. Why do you think Nijinska did not leave the same kind of cultural imprint that Balanchine uh, did? In the review of your book in The Nation, Jennifer Wilson's explanation of this is that Nijinska, quote, would never fully acclimate to the strictures of the supposedly free world, 
her spirit never left Kiev, close quote. I wonder if that's the way you see it. Well, I, I do think there is something to that, that her spirit remained in Kiev and that she kept trying to recapitulate that moment of freedom in her studio and that sense of sharing and of openness and uh, an openness that was free of market forces um, again and again. But I also think it's because she was never able to get a company with, she never was able to have a long-term association with a company. And work survive when they're created or maintained in a company for many, many years. That's why Balanchine had a huge imprint. He had the New York City Ballet, which he founded in 1948. It's still around. <laughs> Nijinska's companies kept, you know, fleeing. You know, they kept dying, um, including those she thought would would live her association with ballet theater was in some ways fortunate because La Fille Magardée, her first work for the company, actually survived many more years than I thought it had. But then eventually it was re the ballet was re-choreographed and there went Nijinska's ballet. So this again and again happened to her. And I think that's the worst thing for choreographers, that there's no place for your dances to be performed. And unfortunately, the recording technology was not good enough. Um, we have snippets, poor snippets of her choreography during the 40s and early 50s, but we have very, we have no sustained sense. And the only two ballets that remain in repertory, Les Nos and Les Biches, have done so because they were revived, they were restaged at the Royal Ballet in London in, 19, in the 1960s. And they were notated, they were filmed, and they were performed again and again over time so that they sang roots in the um, in the company and in the minds of the audience. Lynn Garofola's new book is La Najinska, Choreographer of the Modern. You can read about it in the nation's book issue. Lynn, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, well, thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. 
engineering your success.